From the Pardis Institute of Jewish Studies, this is Pardis from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, a Pardis alum. This week, Chukat with Rav Rachel Berkowitz. Rav Berkowitz has prepared a handout sheet for this podcast, and you're invited to download it from elmad, E-L-M-A-D, pardes.org and use it to follow along with the podcast. Rav Rachel Berkowitz is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Rav Rachel Berkowitz. This week is Parshat Chukat in Bamidbar 19, Numbers 19. And the Parsha opens with Hashem, God, speaking to Moshe and Aaron, saying, Zot Chukat HaTorah asher tziva Hashem lemar. Deber el b'nei Yisrael, ve'ichu elecha para adumat mimea, asher ein ba'mum, asher lo aleha o. Right, the chapter opens discussing the red heifer. And God says to Moshe and Aaron, this is going to the statue of the Torah. Speak to the children of Israel and have them take for you a perfectly red, unblemished cow, upon which no yoke was laid, no human work has been done with this cow. This part we're going to come back to later on in the podcast. And the text continues telling the detailed and complex rules of how this red heifer should be sacrificed or used. Um, Elazar the Kohen is going to take it outside of the camp and slaughter it there. And then he's going to sprinkle the blood. And eventually this cow is going to be burned and all of it, its hide, its flesh, its blood, even its dung is going to be burned. And then later on, um, we're going to mix it with certain types of wood and hyssop. And that's going to be also put in the burning of the cow. And all of this is going to render the Kohen Tameh, and he has to wash his garments. And um, the person who burns the cow is going to need to wash their garments and wait till they become, they're going to be unclean. Tameh till the evening. And then in verse 9, it says a different person who is Tahor, who is ritually clean, is going to come and take these ashes and place them outside the camp. And then this is going to be um, And this shall be a keepsake for the congregation of the children of Israel for the sprinkling water. It's going to be used for cleansing. We're going to take this these ashes, and we're going to eventually mix them with this water that is somehow a keepsake, and we're going to come back to this aspect as well later on. And um, it's going to be mixed together, and the person who takes these ashes is also going to be Tameh. And then you can continue reading on in your own till the end of the chapter, but the laws are relayed to us about how this special mixture of the para duma and the ashes and the water enables people who have come into contact with a dead person who are Tamein mate to be purified again. And there are many questions you could ask about this ritual. How does it work that something that is mitahair makes people pure, actually makes the people who are doing it impure? Many complex things that we do not fully understand about this ritual. Um, but what I'm interested in discussing with you today is how, what do the rabbis do with this ritual post-temple destruction, what do they have to say about it? How do they study it? How do they, what do they learn from it? And then possibly what we can learn from it. So in the Mishnah itself, there's actually an entire tractate dedicated to the Parah Duma called Masechet Parah. 
it's in the Seder of Taharot. Um, and there are 12 chapters dedicated to it. However, all 12 of the chapters really deal straight on with the technicalities of the temple ritual of the Paraduma. And um, for those who are interested, it's worth reading chapter three, because it talks about how um, if you need someone, chicken and egg problem, if you need to be Tahor to get involved in this, how do we ever get the first Tahor person? And describes how children are born and raised in complete Tahara and a complete state of purity in the special place where women gave birth and how they were raised so that they could participate in this ritual. It's quite interesting on your own on Shabbat if you have time. Look at chapter three of Mishnah Para. But what's interesting to me is that there is no Talmud, neither Jerusalem Talmud or Babylonian Talmud on Masachet Para. Because I think it, it wasn't, there was no need to learn it al Haseder, to learn it chapter by chapter in order, because it didn't have a pressing relevance in their lives post destruction of the temple. However, that isn't to say that the rabbis didn't learn about Paraduma, because mixed in throughout the whole Talmud in different places, laws about Paraduma are raised within the course of discussion of other topics. And I want to examine one of those instances with you today. There is a very, very interesting place in Masechet Gitin, in the tractate on divorce, and this topic you're going to see in a moment isn't about divorce, in which we um, learn about an example when the rabbis raise a comparison or want to learn something from the paradigma. So that's what I want to discuss with you today. So let me sort of explain the context of what's going on here in Masechet Gitin, and then we'll see where Para Aduma gets brought into the conversation. So the Mishnah being discussed is the Mishnah that appears in the fifth chapter of Gitin, Mishnah 4. And it's source number two on your source sheet. It says, So these are some very bizarre and interesting cases, but I, I hope you'll find it interesting. I think they can still be relevant today in their meta um, sense. It's a case of someone who, um, one person has some produce, and I, who may be ritually impure, I touch that produce and I cause damage to it because now there's a more limited market of who he can sell the produce to. He can't sell it to Kohanim who might need to eat it in a state of Tara. If I had wanted to set it aside to be tithed, it can't be used. So that's the case of Midameh. Midameh uh, is I have some tithed produce and some untithed produce and someone mixes them together even puts just a little bit of my tithe produce in my untithe produce. Now I have a problem because instead of being able to sell it on the open market, because there's something special that was supposed to be holy and sanctified and dedicated to the priests, I can only sell it to Kohanim. So um, you've limited my market value and you've done some damage to my material. Last thing is I might have some wine and you mix in some Yaya Nesach. Yaya Nesach could either be wine that a person has offered to another God and therefore is forbidden or even um, wine that hasn't been offered but has been prepared by a non-Jew in some ways, it's a little bit complicated halacha, and mixed into my um, wine. And then also it limits my, I'm not supposed to get any, um, any hana from it, I'm not supposed to get any benefit from it, and it does damage to my property. Um, the cases here that are interesting, of course, normally, if someone does damage to another's property, they are required to pay for the loss and to pay for the damage. That's a clear and simple thing. But what's interesting about these three cases, and we're going to see even with the fourth case of the Kohanim, right, the Kohanim are offering a, um, they're offering up a sacrifice on my behalf in the temple, but they have 
in a, a wrong intention. They think the wrong thought. They think, I plan to eat this at the wrong time. I plan to sprinkle the blood at the wrong time. They do it correctly, but they actually just had it something wrong with their thought process, this nullifies the sacrifice and I'm going to need to bring another one. Um, and so this also causes me financial loss. So all of these cases are like other cases of damage where financial loss is caused to me. However, what's shocking about them is you can't see the damage, right? The produce that has been made to me looks exactly the same. The wine looks exactly the same. Normally when I do damage to something, I see that something's broken, something's lost, something's destroyed. Here we have cases where the damage is unrecognizable, is, un, is not evident to the human eye. And that is the question that the rabbis are discussing. Is this considered real damage that I have to pay something back? So the Mishnah states that if I did it unintentionally, I'm exempt from paying for the damage. And if I did it intentionally, I'm required to pay for the damage. But what's interesting is the conversation that happens on this Mishnah, right? And you might be thinking, what, does this happen anymore? I was trying to think if this was relevant today. I'm imagining maybe someone who is, who in the midst of this pandemic sneezes or coughs on your food, right? And so you're worried that damage has been done. You can't see it. You don't know. It looks like your same peanut butter and jelly sandwich that it did a moment before, but you're worried that the person might be infected with a disease and now has spread the disease on your sandwich. And now you don't want to eat that sandwich and you have lost the uh, value of your sandwich, right? Does that person have to pay you for the loss of the sandwich? Obviously, if they poured bleach on it and you saw that the sandwich is ruined or they stepped on it and you saw the sandwich is ruined, then you'd have a clear proof that some damage has happened. But here, when the damage possibly is invisible, how do you prove such a thing? And that's part of the challenge of the rabbis. Because this chapter in Masachikitin is a chapter in which we've been discussing all the decrees that the rabbis have done for tikkun olam, for the benefit of the world. And here in this collection, they're thinking about decrees that they're trying to make for the smooth running of society. And the assumption is that every one of the decrees that the rabbis make is different than what the original Torah law was. And here's where we jump into the flow of the Talmud. The Talmud is trying to figure out what was the adjustment of the tikkun of the, of, that was made in our Mishnah. Which way is the original Torah law go? And their conversation is about unrecognizable damage, damage that you can't see with the human eye. Is does the Torah consider that to be real damage? And Chizkiah says, Dvar Torah achad shogeg v'achad mezid chayav. According to Torah law, Chizkiah says, unrecognizable, non-evident damage is actual damage. Okay, then the Gemara says, my tama, right? What's the reasoning behind this, right? And it says it explicitly. Hezek she'enu nikar shmei hezek. Damage that is not recognizable is called damage. And then the Gemara says, so if so, why did the rabbis make a special takana? This tikkun olab is on the side that says if I was I did it involuntarily, I'm patur, I'm exempt from paying. Right? According to Torah law, whether I was I did something intentionally or not intentionally, I have to pay. But the Mishnah says if it was unintentional, I don't have to pay. That's the tikkun olam. And the Gemara says because we want people to tell, right? I can't see the damage, but I want to know that you maybe coughed on my sandwich or that you touched it when you were Tomei. And so I want people to own up to the mistake that they made so I can know about this damage that I can't see. So I encourage them to do so by saying we won't hold you responsible. That's one side of the problem. The other side 
Um, the other side of the Machloket is a view of Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan thinks completely opposite to Chizkiah. He thinks, Devar Torah, Achad Shogeg, Vachad Mezid, Patur. He thinks, according to Torah law, unrecognizable damage is exempt. There's no such thing. It isn't real damage. You can't see it. It's not there. It's not real. And so, according to him, what's the reason then that the Tikkun Olam is on the side where the Mishnah said that people were who did it on purpose would be obligated to pay. It's, he says, so that we don't go around in the world doing this unrecognizable damage to other people, which does cause them financial loss. And the saying, I have no liability, paturni, I didn't do anything, na 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 you can't get me, because it's not real damage according to Torah law. And so the rabbis came along and made a tikkun olam to say, if you did it intentionally, you're going to have to pay. Okay. At this point, right, so this is our conversation. Is damage that I can't see to the naked eye, but is a type of damage that caused one can cost another's property, is that real damage according to Torah law? It's going to be at this point in the conversation that we're suddenly going to talk about paraduma. Okay, what you've been waiting for for the last 12 minutes. How am I going to get to the Parsha? Um, and so the Gemara continues. It's specifically on the, in the section of the, of the Mishnah that was talking about the Kohanim in the Beit HaMikdash who have inappropriate thoughts when they're offering up a Korban. The Gemara, I won't read it inside, you have it on the source sheet, says explicitly this is because of Tikkun Olam. This is done because of Tikkun Olam to, to better the world. And they, they analyze it and they assume that the perspective that the Mishnah is talking about, that the point of view that the Mishnah is talking about is the point of view of Chizkiah. The point of view of Chizkiah that thinks that damage that you can't see is real damage according to Torah law. And that the rabbis made a takana that if you did it accidentally and not on purpose, we want you to own up. And so we encourage you that you won't have to pay and you should tell people about it. On this point, the Gemara raises a challenge. It says, Maitvi Rabbi Elazar. So I'm on this page three of the source sheet, the third to last box on the page. He says, He says, this is a case about paraduma and about the water of the red heifer. He says, anyone who does any work with the water that's going to be mixed with the ashes or with the heifer, the cow itself, is exempt in the laws of human beings, but is obligated according to the laws of heaven, according to the laws of the divine. So if you remember back to the original Psukim, it said that there shouldn't be a yoke on the on the parah. And the rabbis understand that that any type of human work that you do, bringing this cow into the society of human beings and using it the way human beings normally use cows, is forbidden. And they understand that later on, when talking about the water, where verse 9 said that it should be a mishmeret, that it should be guarded, that this too, that the water has to be put aside specifically once it's drawn for this task, and it cannot be used for anything else. And so the text says, if you go about and use these waters for something, you just do work with them, you're exempt in the laws of human beings, but you're obligated in the laws of Shemayim. And then the Gemara, in its discussion about unrecognizable damage, says, wait a second, if damage that is not done, that is not seen, we say it is damage, right? Meaning, I, I now bring this red heifer to do the ritual in the court. 
in the temple, sorry, in the temple. No one can prove in court that I maybe had to plow my field. There's, you can't really, unless you saw me do it, there's nothing looking at the cow. You don't see any damage on the cow itself, right? Um, but it says, but if that's true, then then I should be I should be held responsible in a human court, right? It's, why does the text say that I'm exempt? This text seems to imply that damage that you can't see by the human eye isn't really damage. And um, then Rebel Yelazar, who asked the question, he's the same one who answers it. And this is the answer he skips. He says, this was the situation that was under discussion. The case of the cow was not that I worked it in the field, harnessed it up to my plow, but rather I just brought this heifer into its mother to nurse. I pulled it on a string to bring it to bring its mother to nurse, which is obviously a permitted action. The cow needs to nurse. I want it to grow and, and, and live. But in my mind, I had the intention that while it was walking through my barn, it would trample some of the hay that I had, some of the wheat I have, and thresh for me. So the action that anyone saw me do was just taking it to nurse. But the byproduct was that I was actually doing some work with it. It was walking on my wheat and doing some threshing. And the case of the water was that I happened to place the bucket of water down on right here, which happens to be the side of a balance of a scale. And then I placed some meat on the other side of the scale and I used it to weigh to see if it was equal or to know what the weight was. Um, and so here too, the action that I did was a permitted action, but it has to do with the intention that I had to use the water for something else, to use the water for something else. And so, um, What's interesting is that this is a case where I'm twice removed from the usual type of damage. Usually I can, I can see the damage. Here I can't even see it, right? It doesn't, the water doesn't look any different. The cow doesn't look any different. And usually I can see the action that the person does when they do damage. But here the action that I saw was him bringing a cow to its mother to nurse or me displacing down the water. I didn't do an action that was an action of work. It only was that my intention inside my head was the intention to use this in the inappropriate way. And so because it's twice removed from the actual definitions of how I decide action, legal action in a court, that I have to see act the action and I have to see the damage, we don't hold you responsible for the damage in the realm of human being, human law, only in the realm of godly law, because according to the divine, these now are ineligible to be used in the ritual of the red heifer. And, um, and the text continues, um, and it says that Rava says that actually he disagrees. He says, If you take the water that's going to be used in this ritual and you use it as a balance on your scales or to use it as weights, I, I maybe I should just say use it as weights. He doesn't explain what type of weights. It is permissible. It's kshera. It's eligible. It doesn't, it doesn't defile it in any way. And then the Gemara says, no, lokasha. This isn't a problem. Um, that the two cases are talking about different things. One is talking about where I said it's ineligible. I didn't use it as a weights on a balance. Rav, when I use it just as a weights on a balance, that's okay. That's what Rava said. It's okay. It's when I put the wa I put the water and then I put like a piece of meat in it and use a displacement method, which is really not weight but measuring volume. Um, and I use it to see how much the water rise in the in the in the bowl, and then I know how much um, how big the size of meat is. That's really using the water, and that's when um, when I'm really creating damage and I'm using it. 
then the Gemara repeats, well, if that's the case, then you've done some damage. And why do we say you're not responsible in the laws of human beings? And they conclude by saying that, um, don't worry, this is not a problem. When Rava says it was okay, the issue isn't really my intention to do wrong. My The issue is that the text said that I really had to safeguard it and I had to concentrate and I had to be focused and I have to have intention. And then in the case with where Rava says it's okay, that I the whole time knew this is the water that's going to be used with the paradema. This is the water that's going to be used with the paradema. And I kept close watch on it, even though I used it on my balances. But in the other case, when I used it on my balances, I like my mind swept, my mind wandered. I had hesachadat. I, I wasn't, my attention wasn't there. I wasn't concentrating and I lost it and I lost my concentration. Um, and so I've, I've answered up the challenge. And, and at this point in the argument, I have been able to explain that damage that we can't see is still real damage. Okay. And I did that through an analysis of the cases of the paraduma. And even though in the realm of human beings, um, I didn't get punished, I can still say that unrecognizable damage is real damage. It just happens to be in this case of paraduma, there were two things that I didn't see. Neither did I see any action that was wrong, nor did I see any damage. And then the Gemara switches gears and it brings another example not to do with paraduma that is like a knockout punch that shows to you that really in the, in the world of the Torah, unrecognizable damage cannot be considered damage. And it's a case where someone steals a coin or steals some truma, tithe food, or steals even some chamed, some leaven. And in the course of while he's holding it in his possession of it being stolen, the coin goes out of circulation, or the truma becomes impure or tamay, or Pesach happens and the chametz is now chametz shavar lava Pesach, chametz that a Jew owned on Pesach and can't be used. And then I have, I, I have, feel guilty and I go back and I return the property to their owner and said, I'm so sorry, I stole this from you. Here is your stuff. And the text says, that's fine. I can say, here's your, here are your coins. And that's it. I don't have the fact that now the coins are out of circulation and you have had a monetary loss is not my concern because you had coins. I stole them. And now I'm returning to the exact same coins. They look exactly the same. The unrecognizable damage to them that they happen to be out of circulation now is irrelevant to the case. And the Gemara ends saying to Yufta that this is a knockout punch. This is a knockout punch. And we have to hold that the Torah law says that unrecognizable damage is not real damage. Now, what's going on here? I hope I haven't lost you by now. To me, these are the most exciting type of sugyot because you have to pay attention and really think about what's happening. And then you see something that in my eyes is really beautiful. What's happening here? What did speaking about paraduma add to the whole discussion that the rabbis were having? Um, when you read the flow of the sugya the main emphasis where they go over and over and over and over again is that they're trying to prove that damage that you can't see isn't real damage. Unfortunately, in the end, they are unable to prove it, but it seems to be their main motivation. And I think that the reason the rabbis are so concerned with this is that much of the truth and meaning in the royal, in the realm of religious ritual is based on a belief and an, and, 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 a basis that what we cannot see has relevance, is true, right? Um, 
just these laws of purity and impurity, which we might not fully understand, are based on something that we can't see. It's the realm of the spiritual. Even certain things with kashrut, right? I see, I, 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 you show me a casserole. It looks perfectly fine. I didn't know if it was cooked in the safe oven when you eat cheese casserole that you cooked meat. I can't see it. But because of the realm of the maybe taste that's been infused, the meat that's been infused into my cheese lasagna would make it not kosher according to the laws of milk and meat. Right. Even even the concept of sanctity of time. I, I can't look at the day of Shabbat and know that it looks different. It's something that I know in my mind that I figured by calculating the calendar. Um, and even God, God's self, the divine is something I cannot see. Right. The whole realm of a for a religious person is is predicated on the view that what is invisible, that the realm that is invisible actually is true. Um, is a realm that exists in reality. And therefore, of course, the rabbis are very motivated to say that this realm of damages that you can't see, that is based on spiritual damage, should be real. However, in this chapter where they're creating all these takanot of tikkun olam, the rabbis function in the realm of human beings. Right? Their goal is not just to live in the realm of the spiritual, to live in the realm of the divine, but they are concerned with the smooth running of society. We need rules that are practical, that make sense. We have a court system. We want to make sure people don't do damage to one another. To do that, we have to base our things on what we can see. Right? It, 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 won't, it won't make sense if we're suddenly making claims, oh, you've damaged my thing. I can make a claim, but I can't see it. I need to have clear set boundaries and rules so that I can bring someone to court. The court can decide if I want to meet out punishment and say, you owe me money. Things have to be clear. And for things to be clear, I need to base it on what the human eye can see. Um, and, and that is what's good for society. What's so, for human society. What's so interesting about the paraduma is it's clearly something that is outside of the realm of human society, right? The verses themselves say that. It should be a cow that's never been used in the way human society uses it. It should be water that's never been used in the way human society uses water. And um, by bringing these examples of paraduma and the water into this conversation, they make this tension between the godly realm and the religious realm that we live in and the rabbis live in and the human realm of the tikkun olam and the courts and damages and the tension between those two worlds, which which so, so, so clearly exists. Um, and ultimately, for a practical, smooth betterment of society, the rabbis need to reject something in the spiritual realm. They need to say, in the here and now, we can only look at what our eyes can see. And we can only adjudicate damage based on damage that we can see. And, and, and that's how they have to practically decide. Um, but uh, through the flow of the learning in the sugya, in the flow of the gemara, in the realm of learning, right, by bringing para aduma in, which the whole basis of the para aduma is to remind us about human intention and the power of the, of the, of the mind. And we can use that deceitfully to, to pretend to do one thing, but really mean something else. And we can use that proactively to have kavana and to elevate a ritual by thinking all the time, this is the special water, this is the special water. And the power of the human mind is what creates that whole realm of the godly within human life. 
And so the rabbis who are constantly trying to balance both of these worlds and ultimately in the judicial system on the case of damages have to rule in the realm of human beings in Dine Adam, where damages that you can't see aren't real damages. But through the sugya of learning and bringing the example of the divine realm of Paraduma, they are able, I think, to balance both of these worlds. And so ultimately, when you learn the sugya, you find out that we ignore the realm of the invisible. But through the learning of the sugya, we've elevated the, the realm of human consciousness, of human intention, of, of what the mind can think and can know that in, with human beings we know exists in our own mind, that there's something you can't see that can be true because we're thinking about it, and then reinforces for us that possibly in, in, the, in the realm of Shamayim, there might be things that we can't see visibly with the human eye, but we know to be true. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rav Perkowitz. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardis from Jerusalem. Jerusalem.